that finished work of the cross, which is what Easter celebrates. Good Friday is about the crucifixion of Jesus, which is incredibly significant. We are not gathering on Good Friday. We're going to be gathering on Easter Sunday, more appropriately termed Resurrection Sunday. It's that day that we memorialize, that we celebrate that Jesus is alive. He's risen. We're not just following a a dead institutionalized philosophy. Uh, We're not just celebrating a historic figure. We believe that Jesus is alive, that there is significance in him being risen from the grave. And now there is new life available for us. So it is finished. Jesus' final words on the cross, not his final words in his existence on earth, Those final words spoke of empowering people to go from their place of knowing into other people's lives to reveal this good grace, the finished work of, of Jesus. But his final words on the cross were, it is finished. And I touched on the significance of just that claim. Not that claim in a theological sense, but that claim in a very practical, real life sense for you and I. It is finished speaks of completion. It is finished speaks of rest. It is finished speaks of the burden being made lighter. There is profound significance in it is finished. I love that when Jesus uttered those words, what he was really speaking about was the completion of his earthly mission which was the end of that chapter, but really it was now the beginning of Jesus going to work in our lives. So it was an ending point, naturally speaking, but from a spiritual perspective, it was the beginning point. Because it is only in the life, death, and then resurrection of Christ that his work becomes relevant into our lives. That Jesus is no longer physically with us, but by his spirit, there is a continued working going on in our lives if we choose to abide in Him. If we choose to keep walking with Him, if we choose to have faith in Him on a daily basis, if we are abiding through His Word, through His Spirit, there is a working going on in our lives. We are being transformed each and every day, renewed, refreshed into His likeness. We are growing in love. And like I said earlier, that is the the benchmark, that is the measurement. Are we growing in love? Are we growing in love for God and for each other, beginning in His love for us growing in our life? And really the message of Easter, the, the celebration of Easter is the celebration of God's love for all mankind. That He loved us so much that He made a way for us when we could not make a way for ourselves. That he loved us so much that he didn't try and fix us from the outside, but that he stepped into the mess of humanity in the form of a human to bring about a way for there to be wholeness and healing and reconciliation. That we would now be reconciled with the source of life. Everything separated from life is death. And death is not so much a punishment as it is simply a consequence of being separated from life. And God is life. And God is love. And we see that in the image of Jesus. 
Jesus being love wrapped up in the flesh. Today, I just want to continue on a little bit about what I touched on reading from the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews, we have to understand the context of it. It's written to the Hebrew people, Jewish people. You might think to yourself, if I don't have any association with a Jewish context, how is this applicable to me? What we need to understand is that the letter was written to the Hebrews to help them understand the new way of Jesus. That for a lot of Hebrews who were coming to Jesus by way of faith and now following him, had received the grace of God, but they had lived so much of their life in a certain way. Practically speaking, faith speaking, and now Jesus enters into the time and space in which we live, there is a new way, and the author is trying to help the Hebrews understand the new way. In essence, the primary objective of the book of Hebrews is to highlight the supremacy of Jesus. That Jesus wasn't just one of the many things that we needed to add to our list of ways to God. That he would be put alongside other aspects of practical outworkings of faith, that Jesus was actually to be elevated above it all. That he is now the only way, the only truth, the only life. That the way to God, our Father, is through Jesus. And so all the other things that the Hebrews had been adhering to for generations, it wasn't like the author is saying to them, those are no longer practically important for your life. But he was saying to them, that they no longer carry significance in the way to the Father. Jesus is the only way. And Jesus, through the finished work of the cross, made it available for all people for all time. And he starts to touch on things that would have been done previously, that we've even spoken about, certain sacrifices, uh, certain means to the temple, practical outworkings. So I'm going to read to you from Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read to you from Eugene Peterson's The Message. This is the way that Eugene Peterson describes what I've just touched on, speaking about the old way and the new way. Okay. The old plan was only a hint of good things in the new plan. Since that old law plan wasn't complete in itself, it couldn't complete those who followed it. No matter how many sacrifices were offered year after year, they never added up to a complete solution. If they had, the worshipers would have gone blissfully about their way, no longer dragged down by their sins. But instead of removing awareness of sin, when those animal sacrifices were repeated over and over, they actually heightened awareness and guilt. That is what is meant by this prophecy. Put in the mouth of Christ, you don't want sacrifices and offerings year after year. You've prepared a body for me for a sacrifice. 
It's not fragrance and smoke from the altar that whet your appetite. So I said, I'm here to do it your way, O God. The way it's described in your book when he said, you don't want sacrifices and offerings. He was referring to the practices according to the old plan. When he added, I'm here to do it your way, he set aside the first in order to enact the new plan, God's way, by which we were made fit for God by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. Once and for all. We might not have lived by way of sacrificing goats. What we need to look at it is like this. What the people of God were doing was that they were fulfilling what had come through Moses when they were liberated into the promises of God. They had been held captive for generations, literally speaking. And for us, we need to look at it like a metaphor. That they were held captive, they were oppressed, they cry out to God, God through Moses brings about liberation for an entire people group and they walk through the wilderness towards the promise. So in a moment they are freed, but they're still heading towards the promise. It's almost like they are freed and being made free at the same time. And while they were being made free, God had to bring about a certain way for them in order to recalibrate their ways of God because they had become so accustomed to the ways of Egypt, so accustomed to a secular way of thinking, a a humanistic way of thinking, to now reorienting their life towards God and God gives them certain practical means to do so. They also got to the stage where they started to bring about God intent through human effort. They're feeling like they hadn't yet walked into the promise. They've left what they've been oppressed from, and they're now in the wilderness time of life. And for all of us who've been in a wilderness time of life, uncertainty often breeds a desire to go back to what we know, even though what we know wasn't good. It's a crazy human dynamic. We're we're often far more comfortable in the bad that we know rather than the good that we don't know. And so in this time of walking towards the good that they don't know, um, they build, construct idols, a golden calf. And it was their way, human effort, to engage with God, which wasn't God's way. And we do the same all the time. Even though we're not sacrificing goats and bulls, and even though we might not be building golden calves necessarily, we live in such a way that often self-determines our positioning before God. That we turn it far more into what we can do, what we are capable of doing, or what we feel we have to do in order to live right before God. So we might not be actually sacrificing or offering, but we kind of are. 
and we live in this way of strife and struggle and constantly feeling like we need to sacrifice and offer and sacrifice and offer to be right with God. But the once and for all sacrifice means that instead of trying to live for salvation, we can now live from salvation. And there's a big difference of living. It's not to say that when you live from salvation, you are perfect and have it all together, and that life is perfect and have it all together. Quite the opposite often. But what it means is, is it allows us to live from a place of restful contentment and security knowing that we are saved by grace, not through our own endeavors and efforts, and that God in his loving kindness made a way and will continue to make a way. And that it is not self-determined, it is God-determined. And that's why the book of Hebrews, it refers to this old way and the new way. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are we still living in the old way? The old way of self-elevation, the old way of self-help, the old way of self-growth. But if we're elevating self to the same position of Christ, what we're doing is we're simply removing ourselves from God's grace towards us. Not again by way of punishment, but simply by way of consequence, result of. And then actually what the, the author is trying to get the Hebrews to understand is that you've been so self-determined for so long, now there is one who has fulfilled everything you have attempted to fulfill in your own strength. And you can just rest in him. And if you read the book of Hebrews, it actually goes to talk very specifically about the Sabbath rest. And it uh, talks about Joshua, and it talks about that generation, that there was rest before them, but they never entered the rest. could be the same for us. There is rest available for us. That statement, it is finished. Completion, for me, is about rest and freedom. But are we living in that rest and freedom? And that's the thing that we're pondering on. It's the thing that we're reminding ourselves of again as we head towards Easter weekend. Are you confident to approach God? It's a good question to ask yourself. Are you confident to approach God? Or are you hesitant or reluctant or, you know, is there a trepidation about you approaching God? There's a difference between an awe and a reverence and being fearful or trepidatious or cautious, are you confident to approach God? Think about the thing that you don't want anybody else to know about. We all have it. We all have it. And I'm pointing at myself right now as well. Think about the thing that you don't want anybody else to know about. How confident are you to take that thing to God. Because that's really what it means to confidently approach God. Because we might think, I can confidently approach God 
in moments when there's a cool song on the screen and I can lift my hands and I can meet with God because God, look at me, I'm lifting my hands, I'm in a hundred-year-old church building, which makes it more holy, not, but that's what we often think, and I'm like, okay, God, now I can confidently approach you. The reality is, is, is God sees your hands raised, and he, he's stoked, I would imagine. Uh, he, he sees you in attendance, and I'm sure he's seeing that as a good thing. But you know what else he sees? He sees that part that you don't want anybody else to see. And if you're constantly trying to conceal that part before God, I'm not talking necessarily before everybody else, but if you're constantly trying to conceal that part, you're carrying something that is unnecessarily heavy upon your life that God is simply asking you to let go before him and to receive rest and freedom. Because it was a once-for-all sacrifice, which made a way for the it is finished to be appropriated into our lives. That we can walk freely and confidently with God in every aspect of our life. Now, even in our trying to conceal that part of our life that we don't want others or maybe even God to see, God still loves you. He still loves you. He has nothing but love for you. See, God's love is not dependent on what we do or don't do to get his love. He doesn't operate in a worldly manner. God's love exists because he is by very definition love. He's where we get love from. So he loves you, not because of what you do or don't do. He loves you because of who he is. And so therefore, you have no ability to effect his love for you. You can't make him love you more, and you can't make him love you less. Because his love is constant, always the same. And he loves you now as much as he ever will as much as he ever has. The question we have to ask ourselves, though, is have we received that love? Are we living in that rest, in that finished work? Are we living in the once and for all sacrifice, knowing that we don't have to keep going over and over and over to please God, but we please him by simple faith every day, trusting in his finished work? The old and the new, the new is here, and the new is grace. Grace is God's effort on our behalf. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 5, and we'll bring it to a close with this passage, okay? What I love about the book of Romans, Hebrews, the context was written specifically to the Jewish people of the time who had come to believe in Jesus, but they were kind of getting a little bit mixed up between old ways and new ways, it's emphasizing the supremacy of Jesus, that he is the only way. Romans was written by, the authorship is accredited to Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was previously known as Saul, now Paul, through this conversion with God's grace. And it's him writing to a group of people who he had never met before. A lot of Paul's writings are written to churches that he was personally involved in seeing start. And so he knew people, he knew context. That's why often you will see a lot of his other letters are written to correct certain things. He has a personal investment 
in those relationships, okay? There's a few things going awry. There's a few ways of, of things happening. And he's writing as way of correction. The Romans, he's writing as way of introduction. He's like, I have desired to come and see you. We haven't seen each other yet, but this is who I am. And this is all of what I believe. So Romans can often be described as being Paul's statement of faith. Kind of everything wrapped up in a nutshell, okay? Romans chapter 5. This is what he says about the old way, the new way. We're talking about it is finished in the cross, that it is a once and for all sacrifice, grace, law, old, new. Romans 5. You know the story of how Adam landed us in this dilemma that we're in. First sin and then death. Okay, he's referring to Adam and Eve, story of creation, mankind walking confidently and freely with God. I I don't know, like when you start to look at Genesis, it gives us the original intentions of God that he desired to walk in the cool of the day through the life that we live. I love that imagery. I love it being a garden. Uh, I love it being fruitful. Uh, I love it being restful, purposeful, because God still put man and woman into a purpose-filled life. There was purpose about their existence, but it came all from an intimacy with life, that being God. And they just walked with God. It wasn't overly formal. It wasn't through religious adherence. It wasn't through sacrifices and offerings. It was just walking in the cool of the day. But Adam, Eve, chose to elevate self above what God's way was, and now a separation occurs. And so that was the dilemma. And that dilemma meant that sin entered the world and therefore death entered the world. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone. But the extent of the the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. That's when the law started to come in. That's when certain rules and regulations started to come in. And all those really did was put a mirror up before humanity to reveal to us how far we had actually strayed from the intent of God. That's what it was. It was like, you guys think that you're kind of doing this life okay? Well, here's some uh, things to follow. Let's see how well you can do. And we know that they did, as we would as well, failed dismally. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience the state of sin or the termination of life. But Adam, who got us into this mess, also points ahead to the one who will get us out of it. Romans 5 verse 18. Here it is in a nutshell. And if there's anything that you can get, get this. So if you've switched off, switch back on. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person, Adam, did it wrong and got us all into sin and death, another person, Jesus, did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. 
One man said no to God, Adam, and put many people in the wrong. One man, Jesus, said yes to God and put many people in the right. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. We know that the fastest way for our children to do something is to tell them not to do something. And some of you are the same, myself included. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together through the Messiah, invites us into a life that goes on and on without end. Jesus paid the price once and for all. We don't have to keep paying the price. We enter into the result of the price that was paid simply through faith. That we would believe God did it for me because he loves me. And he did it by way of Jesus. And if I choose to believe in Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, life comes to me. Life in its fullness, life everlasting. And once we've entered into life, We live in life every day through simply trusting in Jesus once and for all.